Okay, welcome to the Six Cells podcast. This is Mike Nicholson from Six Cells. Today, um, we're going to continue our conversation around attention, um, and I'm delighted to welcome Shazia Ganai, uh, the, the UK CEO at NeuroInsight. Shazia, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, for those that don't know, Shazia, could you give us a brief introduction to uh, NeuroInsight and what you guys do, please? Sure. So um, we do research, uh, we understand humans, and we do that by measuring the subconscious, which is the seat of all human decision making. So our our value, our core kind of uh, mission is to make the subconscious conscious. And we do that using a technology which is proprietary. It was created by a neuroscience professor who's based out in Melbourne. Um, and that, pro- that proprietary tech is called SST or steady state topography. And it allows us to measure electrical activity in the brain while people are, you know, watching TV or on their phones or looking whatever content or listening to whatever content we want to put in front of them. And we measure second by second how they are responding to that content, but at a subconscious level. So about kind of 80 to 90 percent of our decisions happen in our subconscious. And so actually understanding that will allow brands and advertisers to get to the to get to the detail of what really matters for them. So that's what we measure. We've got a bunch of metrics, you know, like any good research agency does. So we we measure uh, memory, emotion, and attention, broadly speaking. We've got sort of six metrics at play in that space. Amazing, thank you for that. Uh, you mentioned that 80 to 90% of all decisions are made subconsciously. Um, I think we're talking about um, automatic decision-making or what Daniel Kahneman described as system one thinking, right? Yeah, we are. And that stat is thrown around a lot. Some people say, oh, surely it's not that much. I mean, we've got like over 100 billion neurons in our brains. So Mm. there's a lot going on up there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I read a lot um, of Rory Sutherland, Sam Tatum um, and Daniel Kahneman and and the like. And um, it does seem that for evolutionary reasons and for the fact that it takes our brain a lot more effort to use system two than it does system one, that we do um, outsource, if you like, for want of a better term, most of our decisions to automatic. So I think that's fairly um, well documented around around the literature. So what I wanted to do, um, just to give this um, episode a little bit of direction, is to try and agree... Um, on the core purpose, if you like, of brand advertising. And I think we are in agreement when I say that the core, if we think that automatic decision-making is where most decisions are made, and so that point of purchase, whether that be a B2C brand and you're in a shopping aisle, or whether it be a B2B brand and you suddenly have a brief and a budget and you want to do something, that automatic decision-making comes about because you have long-term memories of a certain brand that do a certain thing, right? So are we in agreement, Shazia, that the role of brand advertising is to be remembered so that automatic decisioning can take place when somebody moves into the market for what you're selling? Yeah, absolutely. So it's proven that what goes into your long-term memory bank, that correlates to your future action, your decision-making and your behaviour change. So absolutely, if a brand wants to build a relationship with a consumer, which all of them do, because they don't just want a single purchase, they want loyalty and repeat purchase, they want advocacy and word of mouth. The only way to do that is to build memory structures alongside positive emotional responses. That's really important, because if you go into someone's memory for all the wrong reasons, that's you'll be remembered, but you won't necessarily be liked. And so 
building positive associations, building long-term memory structures is the best way to drive brand loyalty and brand purchase for the future. Okay, fantastic. So we have a goal to aim towards uh, with, with our conversation then. Uh, fabulous. Um, so at Six Sales, we have three key insights that our business was built on. Um, two of them are quite relevant to my next question. So just very quickly, um, the first thing that we've proven time and again is that on platforms such as LinkedIn, uh, but I, I suspect it's everywhere, but I just I happen to know through testing that LinkedIn, uh, this is correct. And that is that people pay more attention to other people uh, versus brands. So um, if you were to share almost identical content from yourself, let's say, and then share it from the company page, you would find typically, um, not every time, but mostly the the, the number of views, uh, the amount of engagement in your post would be much higher. Um, and I think that plays into um, how you, uh, you talk about the brain working, which is that we look for uh, human connection. That's one of the things that the brain's constantly um, constantly looking for. And our second insight is that humans are wired for story. Um, and I know you talked um, infamously, perhaps, about the fact <laughs> that people don't care about brands, um, they care about <laughs> stories. So could you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that, please, that people sure. don't care about brands, they care about stories? Yeah, I always say that. Um, I always say it with a smile on my face. As someone who's ex-client side, uh, I know how important that brand really is. And, and what I mean by it is that our primary kind of point of connecting with something isn't a brand. And the reason for that is because people don't like a hard sell. We actually have a part in the front of our brain um, in our prefrontal cortex that kind of develops as you get older. So when you're a kid, it's not there. And that's why kids do stupid stuff, right? And they believe in tooth fairies and fairy tales and all that other good stuff. And, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, we're born to be open so that we can take in context. As we get older, though, these parts of our brain develop from an evolutionary point of view to help us to assess risk. And that is also one of the things that kind of, I guess, helps us not to say that a brand is a risk, but anything that feels like a push or a hard sell, the brain will want to know whether it has any value for it because our primary concern, our brain's primary concern is self-protection, is to look out for itself. And so that's why we assess risk in that way. And for that reason, a brand that does a hard sell is one that is less likely to be instantly connected, whereas ones that tell stories which is how humans make meaning of the world and make sense of life. That's what's going to work. We're wired to seek out narrative. And we, we do that on a daily basis. I don't, I don't think we necessarily think every conversation is like an ad, but every ad is like a conversation, right? So at the start of our chat, if, you know, before you hit record, when we said hello and asked how our week was going, you know, that conversation is a story that we are yeah. telling each other. And that's what our brain is wired for. And that feeds into the other point you mentioned about human connection. So we are, we're really wired for that, right? And we saw that in, in all its glory over the pandemic when we were kind of starved of it. Um, we seek human connection and we see through research that we've done on advertising campaigns, when we look at creative specifically, when you show humans interacting, we see a part of the brain really active where we measure uh, our metric of engagement, which is actually 
a very overused word in marketing. So what I mean by engagement is a sense of personal relevance. So if you feel you relate to what you're seeing on the screen, and we know that when people see humans talking or when you see facial expressions that are responding in a way to a scenario with other people, our brain really enjoys that. Yeah, I, I was listening to Rory Sutherland on um, another podcast, The Diary of the CEO, CEO one yeah. of my favorite podcasts uh, with Stephen Bartlett. Yeah. And he talked about stories and he gave, he gave a lovely description of stories. Um, he said they're the PDF format um, of our brains in, in as much as they're universal. And it doesn't matter what hardware you've got, the PDF will still work. It's how we store information and it's how we uh, send information. And I thought that was a really nice way of, um, of kind of describing story. You're right though, right? If we met a friend in a bar or a restaurant, we're just... We're, we think we're chatting, but actually we're just telling each other a series of small stories about our life or about their life or about something else that happened. It's, it's all about story. Um, and, and you mentioned um, as well, I think at MADFEST, um, but I may be misremembering where I heard you say this, um, you were asked a question about um, the importance of creative and you talked about uh, the narrative being really important. Could you expand a little bit more about what you mean by that, please? Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I think this is, it's not just me who says this, right? This is a tale as old as time. And, and there's so much amazing work out there around narrative. What we've seen is there are several narrative levers that are really important. So you can make an ad, but if the story or the narrative isn't strong and isn't well put together and well composed, then that creative won't work. This is absolutely known. With our brains, what happens is for advertising, when you're watching an ad, your brain doesn't work like a video camera. It works like a still camera in the sense that it captures snapshots of information that it finds relevant, interesting, intriguing, you know, all those kinds of things that capture its attention. They are the things that your brain will pick up on. And so that's what it's about. It's about creating a narrative that is made up of parts that will engage the brain, capture its attention, sustain its attention to drive that impact. And, and that's kind of a process that I think narrative needs to take. And we've seen loads of different levers. So one is using human interaction, the way you use faces, um, the way you use narrative threads. So having a consistent theme that goes all the way through. You can hero the product in some ways, but the people and the characters of the story should be the main vehicle of driving it not the product itself because again that can feel like a hard sell there's a ton of stuff around this out there that we've published as well um, because there's multiple narrative levers that work yeah well i'm 100 percent on board on that our tagline at six sales is people shape marketing and we think that people talking to people is what it's all about basically in story form um you, you sh showed in that talk that i mentioned at madfest you showed a, a verizon ad i think it was a 30 second yeah. verizon ad um which had an, a narrative throughout it and it had characters it had people in it and you showed how people's brain response happened in relation second by second to that advert so um you obviously have somebody wired up and watching the ad and what i thought was really interesting and kind of along the lines of what we've just spoken about there around human connection and people liking people is that when the family came together in a in a specific second or frame whichever way you want to think about it attention really peaked do you find you, you mentioned earlier that you know how you use faces and how you use people is um is really key do you find that that's a fairly consistent theme that when people are paying attention to whether it be tv adverts or video adverts or outdoor adverts or whatever it is that it's the faces and the people that tend to get the most attention 
assuming yeah, there's no cute dogs or cats around obviously obviously because that's uh, that's also <laughs> yeah, very intriguing for some yeah so i in that so that campaign specifically showed a family of four and they all had the same face so it was the same person and we saw visual attention so how stimulated your visual cortex is in the brain we saw that peak memory on the other hand was quite low so that is a really good example of how something kind of interesting and unusual that shows human faces can capture attention mm-hmm. now the important thing is how you then use those characters to then sustain attention that's where the narrative piece comes in because it's a funny ad you know you're seeing a family who all are the same character um and initially it's kind of like what the hell am i seeing so your eyes kind of take notice so you do get attention being captured at that point the way to use characters sort of um and human interaction i guess to sustain attention is to develop their story as something evolving in that ad we saw that family it caused a peak of visual yeah. attention memory not so great um and then after that visual attention went up again when you see them again because again it's funny again visually it's kind of a, an intriguing moment mm. but how you develop those relationships matters quite a lot okay and but but is it i mean okay they they were all the same character in that particular yeah. advert but is it the case that people tend to lean in uh, i think is one of the the the, the terms that you use at um you know at your organization is lean into the advert a little bit more if they see another human is that you know along the, the human connection the thing that our brains are looking for is that so, something that's fairly universal or or is it does it depend very much on the narrative so the way that we execute stories around people is quite important so the measure of personal relevance we see that really kick off so that engagement measure when we see human connection when we talk about lean in and and lean out so that's our approach withdrawal response that's at the front of the brain it's a measure of emotional direction so that can be somebody leaning towards something because they like it you could also back away if you dislike it so depending on the uh, context within which you show the people that will impact that response in the brain but ultimately as long as you're taking people on an appropriate emotional journey that's what matters so you're not always going to get a lean in response because not every story is happy and mm. the example i always give on this is ages ago when we looked at britain's got talent and we saw kind of simon cowell had there was a quite a high level of memory but quite a dip in the approach withdrawal response whereas for amanda holden very liked but not remembered and so actually what's what's important for them we know you know he's coming across as the bad guy so that is an appropriate emotional response what's really important is being remembered and having the appropriate response alongside it yeah and, and if we think about um cialdini's six laws of persuasion one of them is um is around authority isn't it so we tend to um maybe lean in is the wrong word but we tend to be led a little bit by authority and if we think about britain's got talent then simon cowell <laughs> is the lead judge isn't he and he might be the bad yeah. guy but he's like it's his show and everyone knows it's his show and he's yeah. like what his word goes basically so maybe yeah. there's a little bit of a gravitas thing at play there as well so people are remembering yeah. it more because they're kind of deeming him as an authority Oh yeah. Yeah, it's the yeah. same as celebrity really, isn't it? We see a yeah. lot of data around we did some work on influencer marketing and we saw memory response being quite strong for celebrities. The emotional response wasn't always great. Right. <laughs> 
so so i guess so i'm thinking of really annoying tv adverts but um <laughs> you might really hate the fact that they're in your face at the time but if they help you remember then is that is that a good thing always like you mentioned earlier you might be remembered for the wrong things i mean if, if you annoy people with your advert I'm, I'm thinking of um well i won't mention any names it's not fair but i can think of some adverts that, that really irritate me but i probably remember them so is that good for the brand or bad for the brand because i've remembered it in a negative context it depends so if there's something about there's a distinctive asset um which i can think of one as well we might be thinking of the same one but there are some which are notorious for having annoying jingles for example so mm -hmm. i think you know i would safely say that go compare is well aware that their song mm -hmm. kind of gets stuck in people's heads and they can see that main character and it's a little bit annoying the interesting thing for something like that is when you are then going to find a product to match that service, that category, it's okay for that to occur. If on the other hand, you had a brand ad that um, you had a terrible experience with, it's different because you're building associations through multiple touch points and advertising is one part of that. Um, we talk about what we call the brand room in the brain. So we always say that we build these little rooms in our brains. They're not really rooms, they're like bunches of neurons, but um, we build by association. And so if you had a room for Cadbury's, all the kind of stimulus that you get from interacting with that brand means that your room would be beautifully furnished. It's probably purple and... Mm. Got a gorilla in the corner drumming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But in, in other instances, you might have had a poor brand experience as opposed to just not liking the advertising. And that would mean that your room is furnished with negative associations. The other thing to know is that when there's not enough advertising, there's not enough stuff to furnish that room. And so actually, advertising does a good job at building some of those associations. Brand experiences can contribute to some of the negative stuff as well. That leads me beautifully on to um, my next question, actually, about building those um, brand rooms, as you call them. Mm. Um, attention has been in the news for a while now, um, but um, while I was sunning myself in Tenerife last week, it kicked off big time. I, think, I would say uh, Professor Byron Sharp was talking at um, an MI3 LinkedIn B2B conference in, um, I think it was in Australia, but I'm not entirely sure. And he, he um, well, I'll start with one of the least controversial statements and see how you find that. Um, he, he talks about spreading out your exposures as a brand. So dividing your annual budget into 50 weekly portions or monthly portions, if you want to do it in 12s, and making sure you're always on. He, he was quite scathing of brands that try to do a two-week burst because they want to kind of own that two weeks and then go silent for ages. So is there anything in your research that would support or lean away from the idea that being always on is a good idea if we're trying to constantly kind of furnish those brand rooms? God, I mean, it's. Uh, it, I love the fact that there's so much discussion around this subject. I do often feel as though some of the things are kind of thrown around without uh, enough context or thought around the pragmatism of the world that we live in today. So if I took all that out of the equation and assume everyone has all the budget in the world, which they currently don't. So from a... I think what's important and what we've seen through history is whenever people decide that they are not going to advertise, it's usually to their detriment. So I completely understand that point around, you know, making sure you're always present in the minds of consumers because ultimately it helps to build those memory structures. I think where it gets tricky is 
if you have the same star, if, if people are seeing your content all the time, there is a chance that if there isn't enough evolution in the way that you are talking to your consumers, that there's wear out, you know? So we see this, we see that when you show an ad to somebody um, on repeat over multiple exposures, the brain, once it gets the idea of a story is like, okay, I get it now. And the brain is kind of lazy. It's got its own resource capacity and therefore will take in what it needs to, and then it'll switch out. I think his point is valid in that staying on means that you will help build those memory structures. But what he's missing in the conversation is ensuring that there is enough stimulation and intrigue, which is an important narrative lever, to to not just cause those responses to it to kind of taper off and fall off a cliff, at which point people will get bored and be like, I need you to go away now, brand. <laughs> what you want is for something that allows for clever planning and giving people not just something that captures attention, but an evolution that sustains attention. And that's what drives impact. So when, when the conversations occur around attention, I think one of the things, you know, myself and, and even the likes of Mike Follett, who's fantastic, you know, we've, we've talked about the fact that attention is not one thing. It is a process, you know, and there are stages of attention. There are also multiple vehicles for attention. And so I, I get his point. I get Byron Sharp's point. I think what his point is, is more towards those who think that they should, you know, spend a lot and fast in a burst. I, I get that and then not spend later in the year. I think his point is valid saying that you need to be present because that's what builds memory structures. I just think that there's a danger when somebody of that of that magnitude and who has that much kind of gravitas in this space makes flippant statements like that without perhaps backing it with a bit more context. <laughs> okay. So... Um... I think, to be fair to um, Byron Sharp, I think a lot of this is from academic research that's been peer-reviewed, um, but he's mm -hmm. just trying to simplify, perhaps. But his, his, his next point, um, which I actually had a conversation with him about, just to clarify on LinkedIn today, uh, in preparation for, for this podcast, in fact, but um, he was quoted as saying, our job is to get some attention. I don't want to do advertising and not be seen, but after that, paying for a lot more uh, in brackets attention. No, that was that was his quote. So I asked him to um, clarify why he believed that, and he said that it's um, and I quote: "It's because the peer-reviewed academic research shows a fleeting and partial exposures can work. B there is dramatic declining returns from more attention. So that's what you were talking about. I need you to go away now. I've got, I get it. You know, I've had enough of this. Uh, and then C, there are dramatically increasing costs for longer attention. So if we start to break attention down by this format gets one second on average across all the creatives that we've measured, this one gets five and this one gets 10. I think yeah. C there is the 10 is going to cost you a fortune and it might not be 10x the value to the brand and to the memory structure so i guess my question out of all of that chat is have you seen anything that shows that more seconds of attention leads to better memory structures because intuitively you would think it would but you're the expert so you tell okay. me okay so I, I i kind of it relates my answer relates back to his first point around fleeting attention and also if somebody sees something i don't necessarily need the bit that comes after 
seeing is not the same as remembering. Mm. And so fleeting attention, I would call it, I, I often refer to attention as being superficial versus kind of more active attention, right? So when we talk about number of seconds, you can capture someone's attention in under a second and you can capture it in a way that is completely pointless. So like when you're playing a computer game and you're looking at the screen and you're visually very stimulated and your attention is captured, but your brain doesn't need that stuff for anything real and therefore won't keep it. So your action at the end for a brand, which is ultimately what they care about, that is then superficial attention. So I, I would say that seeing is not the same as remembering and actually what's remembered is what's most important and that can happen in a short amount of seconds but equally it can take longer and I always I mean I come back to you know the simplification of this by looking at number of seconds when you've got something like static versus something like video you've got a difference there in terms of what you're trying to achieve and I know that I'm adding complexity to something which we're all trying to simplify right I do I do think that that's one of the points to note. You know, we have to we have to be mindful of the fact that currently a lot of the attention work that's being done is around gaze. And you know, Karen's work, Karen Nelson Field's work is brilliant, Mike's work is brilliant, and I think what they're moving towards now is not just saying that gaze is the one answer solution. There are other things that matter. Um, because gaze can give you fleeting attention or it can give you proper attention. And when it comes to the point around, I guess, spend um, on attention, given the fact that, you know, Byron Sharp makes a good point around, you know, if you're doing the same thing on repeat, is anyone really going to need to measure that after a while? That is peer reviewed and journaled. But I think, you know, then it comes down to sort of more sensible decision making around the content type and how you evolve that. And it, I, again, I come back to this model of capture, sustain, impact. You know, mm. you've got stages there. It's not just one thing. I think there's some brands that are really good at that. I, I'm yeah. Specsavers and oh, yeah. um, Paddy Power come to mind because right. they've got many, many different executions of basically the same story. You should have gone to Specsavers, um, but they just bring it to life in lots of funny narrative forms. Yeah. Right? So the, the vet trying to operate on a fur hat because the, he couldn't see that the cat's on the other side of the room. There's yeah. just so many of those that tell you exactly the same story, but with very different narrative. The only criticism, and who am I to criticise Specsavers, I might say, is that quite often the brand isn't revealed until the end. And um, as we know, attention isn't constant through a 30-second ad, perhaps. It it could dip in and out. Perhaps distinctive brand assets in the whole 30 seconds might be, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, might be more... Um, uh, yeah. better for long-term memory structures I don't know but so so with spec spec is a great example right because they have this long-standing heritage and they worked you know that that tagline has been around forever mm. right the thing that they do quite cleverly is it's, 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 it's um, popular culture isn't it because we now yeah. use it as a thing to say if someone says oh, I can't find my can't find my handbag and it's right yeah. there should have gone to spec savers it's a thing that's kind of entered yeah. Yeah, popular culture Completely. I think what's really interesting for them and for that example specifically is that they, you said it then, you said, you know, our brain dips in and out. It does because it takes snapshots of the stuff that matters. 
But what's important is that they get the main snapshots of the story and the snapshot of the brand. So they're really good at bringing the brand back in. And we've actually worked with Specsavers a few times. And, you know, the, the, the thing that's really clever is they, they take the same thing, but they use it in stories that are relevant in different ways. So yeah. when the pandemic happened, you know, they did that amazing campaign where they had the guy delivering the parcel and he goes up the wrong like a million sets of stairs in the wrong block of flats right yeah and it's it's using humor but it's also using something that was culturally really relevant at that moment in time which was that we were all having a ton of parcels delivered because we were all just living in our houses and that was it yeah and so what they did that was really clever and we know this from our work is that relevance is a driver of memory is that they knew how to take what they had and evolve it to make the story relevant as opposed to changing what they had. Yeah. I think I think it's probably one of my favourite brands. Weirdly, yeah. I don't shop there, which um, is probably... I the, do. Like, do you? Okay, excellent. <laughs> yeah. It's probably a devastating blow to... Uh, I, I talk about them quite a lot. I've interviewed um, them on the podcast and I absolutely just love their advertising because of all of the things that you said and, and, and so many more. I don't actually shop there, though. Yeah, I think having that, I mean, so Byron Sharp would talk about distinctive brand assets, right? Well, good yeah. should have gone to Specsavers is so ingrained now that you can use it in many different ways. Um, they, yeah. they, um, I wrote about it on LinkedIn um, again through the pandemic. There was, um, I don't know if you're a football fan, I, I'm a Liverpool fan um, and also Sutton United, but I'm, the, the, the relevance is Liverpool here. And we lost 7-2 to Aston Villa and it was immediately after Man United had lost 6-1 to Spurs. So two really outlier type results back to back. And then they just, um, they, they tweeted, we're offering free eye tests to Premier League defenders from Monday. You know, I just thought that's quite funny. <laughs> it's just immediate reactionary. You didn't even have to mention the game because if you saw it, you knew. And uh, and it, again, it just should have gone to Specsavers. They're obviously blind, <laughs> hard of sight yeah. if, if they let that many goals in. And I just think that that's, you know, once you've got something that's so distinctive like that and you can activate it, for want of a better term, in so many different ways, I think you're on to a winner. So context, Shazia. Um, yeah. So another big topic in our industry at the moment with uh, third-party cookies going away eventually, um, but they've partially gone away now and eventually they'll go away on Google. There seems to be a resurgence of contextual-based advertising. What can you and your research tell us about the importance of the context in which advertising messages are seen? God, this is such a subject, right? So, I mean... I feel like even linking it back to the subject of attention, I mentioned very briefly there that we tend to talk about gaze. And actually, there are many, many, many contexts in which people are receiving content. And so actually, context plays a huge role in how our future action and behavior manifests. I think the other thing to, to note on this is we've done a ton of work looking at you know, different types of media context. So everything from like the science of TikTok project we did with Waylo, which is an influencer marketing agency through to what we do on out of home. But with what you just said there around kind of more dynamic and personalized content, we've seen that actually does work. So the, the, hilariously, we did a project literally just before the pandemic on out of home. And we launched the work at an event. It was with Posterscope, JC Deco and Clear Channel. And we launched it and then in March, the world shut down. So, you know, unfortunately, they couldn't necessarily see the results of that um, manifesting through brands, but they are now. The work was done to look at how when you uh, tweak content to add a dynamic trigger, so something like the weather 
the time of day or the location, how that impacts brain response. Just as you and said, we, the weather there, just um, out of interest, uh, the, <laughs> the heavens just opened. It just absolutely oh, started wow. smashing down. You may even be able to hear it because it's that loud on the conservatory behind me. All um, right. Literally, as you said, weather. <laughs> you're in charge of the weather I, as well. Is there nothing you I can't have do? <laughs> actual magical powers. Um, so what what we saw was if you if you have something like a campaign that's that's up, it's for, I think we had like Gordon's Gin, and you add in Hello London at the top of it, we saw an uplift in brain response. And what that's telling us is that actually what people are looking for is relevance. So the scary targeting that was going on was was kind of something else. You know, that was that was pushing the hard sell, you know, in the way that I talked about earlier, how our brains can spot a hard sell from a mile away. There's a difference between that and relevance, making something relevant to the human. Our brains are fairly selfish. Um, you know, they're looking for stuff that matters to them. So from that point of view, I think the rise of this sort of personalized and dynamic content means that the content itself, you can choose whether or not it relates to you, but the, the nuance around it, that would relate to you. And I think that's what's really going to drive much more uh, brand love and brand connection than when it was just a full-on hard sell ad just landing on your page because you were in a context where somebody thought that was relevant. Yeah. yeah. So if there's, um, so if you're, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, uh, if you're reading an article about, um, I don't know, the frames of glasses that might suit your face based mm -hmm. on the shape of your face, yeah. and then you see an advert for Specsavers that gives you those uh, options, the relevance um, that, you, that you talked about there is that there's clearly a, a contextual link because the content and the advertising are similar and there's a relevance because you've chosen to read the article about the subject in which it's being advertised. So would you, would you suggest from your research that, that that's an important thing for advertisers to be looking for? Because I feel that uh, I've said this a few times to a few different people on the podcast, but I feel that when programmatic advertising was born, um, if we if we go to the the holy grail of advertising being the right message to the right person at the right time, we got really excited about the right person and kind of forgot about the right time. Um, we would track people around the internet wherever they may be, um, and yeah. you know, to hell with the context. So I'd be really interested to know what you think yeah. about how important that link is in terms of my brain is now actively thinking about glasses. Um, and buying glasses potentially because I'm looking at which ones would um, suit my face. Turns out none of them do, by the way, just um, as a spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, is that really important? Um, like from a, from a measuring the brains while that's happening, do you have any research that says, yeah, that is definitely important? Yeah, I mean, of course. I think you've hit the nail on the head that, you know, the focus was always on one part of the puzzle. And actually, we live in a world now where we've never been more busy. I mean, it's, you know, and even the way that we're fed content, you know, podcasts, as an example, great, you know, an audio medium predominantly, and something people would listen to when they're out, out and about and on the go. And there's a difference there as well in terms of the way advertising is produced. So the context there, and we saw this, we did some work um, with, which I'll touch on, on radio advertising, on interactive radio ads with Say It Now, where, you know, we're seeing that the way in which you deliver can also be personally relevant. So on podcasts, you know, 
is the presenter of the, the podcast uh, sharing their favorite products as part of the sponsorship. You mentioned Stephen Bartlett. I also yeah. listen to a diary of a CEO. And the Huel. He, yeah, Huel. Yeah. Mm. You know, he advertises Huel because he refers to himself as part of the, you know, Hooligan community, right? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm actually, we're based in the same building as Huel. So I'm waiting for him to walk into the building one day so I can ask him a million questions. Yeah. On my brain. Um, but Go on his podcast. I'm sure I'd love to have you. God, I'd love that. I, um, I, I find it really interesting with, um, with this stuff because with Say It Now, we did some work looking at interactive radio ads. And this is quite a new space, right? Yeah, it's a really interesting business. Yeah, you know, it's when you you have a standard radio ad, but then you're allowing some moment of interaction with voice tech and what happens in your brain. And we saw 10% uplift in brain response on an interactive ad versus a standard radio ad. And it's because you're allowing the person to get engaged in the conversation. And that's not just about them. It's about the context Yes. So it is. It's yeah. so much more, and I think it is becoming very important. You know, by, by going back to by, our friend Byron Sharp, you know, he used to talk about segmentation models not mattering, right? Um, and that we should advertise to everybody. And I thought about this a lot when I was client side because I was responsible for creating segmentation models, right? Um, and I do think that there's value in having a demographic set that you're speaking to because otherwise it dilutes the message. I think absolutely this is where I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says. I think it is important to have those demographics, but we put too much emphasis on just a small part of that and not enough on the bigger picture and the detail around a person mm. um, and, and what they're doing and when, which is so important now given our lives are not really mapped out in the same way anymore. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, Byron Sharp talked about um, most most uh, impressions are fleeting, and I think we would probably agree with that um, for display, certainly. Um, yeah. Byron Sharp talks about um, most attention being fleeting, but the amount of times that I've worked on briefs where um, the agency or the brand want people to engage with the brand, right? And it's kind of, it always makes you kind of roll your eyes a little bit. So people, to, to your point earlier on, people don't care about brands, they care about stories. You can, of course, get people to engage sometimes, but if you're a fairly vanilla and not in flavor, but um, brand that people don't spend a lot of time thinking about, I don't know, like a washing powder or something like that, are people really going to engage and, and how are they going to do that? Um, but um, I wanted to, I wanted to finish off um, talking to you about the, um, you mentioned influencer marketing earlier and TikTok is obviously growing at a crazy rate. And I think about the way that social media is moving and um, at Six Cells, in fact, we're, we're about to start releasing vertical video as a part of our people-shaped marketing. So things like TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, etc. Do you think a big part of the uh, the success of TikTok is that shoot that that kind of craving for human connection and so seeing insight, sound, emotion, other people because it's always people to people, right? It's always a person talking to another person. Do you think that's a big part of why it's taken off so so uh, quickly and uh, it's a billion users now, I think, or something like that? Yeah. So absolutely, and actually, just on the on the people not loving brands and loving stories. Of course, people love brands. They just care more about the stories. And I think yeah. it's really interesting because TikTok is doing that. TikTok is creating stories. Yeah. It's it's not... 
that lead towards yeah. brands rather than brands yeah. leading with what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is that it is giving people the space to be the directors of their own brand experience rather mm-hmm. than a brand dictating to them what their experience looked like. Absolutely, we know that the na- the narrative layout and the sort of um, autonomy that people have on TikTok puts them in the driver's seat and it allows them sort of to to create. I think that's what's driving it. You know, everybody is now a, a brand ambassador. Everybody is a storyteller. And mm. that's why TikTok is a huge success. Yeah. It's also one of the things that is probably more terrifying about it than we know, because the amount of influence that can be created through an individual's narrative is now endless, right? There's no limitations around it. And I think that that has both the power to do good and to do evil. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I've got teenage children and um, I had an argument with my daughter and she was ferociously defending her point of view because she'd seen it on TikTok. And mm-hmm. it not only had she seen it on TikTok, it had got so many views that she thought, well, everyone's seen it on TikTok. And it, and she was absolutely adamant that this TikToker was correct. And I was like, but you don't know it's correct just because you saw it on TikTok. And it, yes, I do. It's had so many likes. You know, like she, I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, this could be quite scary. Like if you get somebody on there trying to sell things that they perhaps shouldn't be, or, you know, the influence is, is very, very scary. And I think a part of that is, again, it's the human connection. Video is the way that is the closest medium to the way we experience real life. So we see people and we can see facial movements and we can see emotion and we can see all of that stuff. And so it it feels really believable, especially through a lockdown when that might've been the most human connection people were getting via a screen. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, there's a whole other conversation around kind of the responsibility that brands have around helping to assist that narrative to not be a danger to young people, right? Mm. And I think Dove did an amazing campaign recently where they showed a young girl and then the makeup process was reversed Yeah. to show her actually at the age that she yeah. is. That actually gave me goosebumps just mentioning it. I know the, the campaign yeah, talking about because it, it was incredible. It's incredible, right? But that is a brand. That is a brand, again, really cleverly going, what is relevant in the context we live in today? And how do I demonstrate what I'm trying to achieve as a brand with that in mind? So Mm -hmm. they took their values, they took their distinctive, I mean, asset might be the wrong word, but their point of view, and they built around it a contextual relevance that works. Yeah. And, And that's a great example of how they've used sort of that understanding of of human behavior in a really positive way for sure Shazia I could speak to you all day about this stuff but I'm sure you have another meeting as we're, we're getting to the end of our time together have you got any final thoughts for the audience on um on uh, what we've what we've discussed anything that you would like to leave people with yeah I think that one of the things is that we you know and I think many people have spoken about this is that is around the subject of attention It isn't new, that's for sure. It's something that has existed for some time. I think that the the difference now is that we're monetizing it. And the danger that we face is that because we're monetizing it as agencies that can sell it as a measurement currency, that we will make the mistake of simplifying how we look at it to the point where in five years' time we go, oh, God, we got that currency wrong. We need to find a new one. 
So it's super important for us to actually pragmatically look for a simple model, but not so simple that we miss a chunk of the work that's required to drive real brand impact and then have to redo it again in five years time. Yeah. And just, just actually a final thought for me, just something that's um, occurred to me. It feels um, that a lot of the industry might see other companies as um, competitors, but it feels like in the attention space, you guys get on quite well. <laughs> I love we that. see you at events and I see you talking and, and, yeah. and sharing podcasts. You seem to all kind of support each other's work, which I think is quite refreshing. Yeah. We, you know what? Absolutely. And I think the, you know, that one of the reasons why for, for me specifically at Neuro Insight that that is in fact the case is we, we, we're doing something incredibly different to everyone as well. I think we are the only ones that can measure audio attention, which mm. let's not forget audio is still the, one of the most relevant things that we need to consider. And everyone seems to have forgotten it. But this goes back to my point that if we start to simplify things down and say, it's just about what your eyes see, and it's just about that capture, it's that fleeting attention moment, then we're going to forget all the other stuff that really matters. And that isn't going to change. In fact, it's only going to evolve and grow more as we move into a space where, you know, we may end up in, you know, we're looking at the metaverse as being a place where there's going to be three-dimensional attention experiences that may involve smell and sound and visual and even touch at some point. And so we need to think outside of the box we're living in now, which is that we're visually dominant creatures and therefore vision is the only thing. There's a lot more. And actually at the core of all of that is memory. Yeah. I feel that there's another podcast episode coming up to <laughs> sound because I've just now got like a hundred oh, other yeah. questions um, around sonic brands. Mark Ritson talks recently about oh, sonic yeah. brands and how important that was on this podcast. There's six little um, digital ticks, um, which is my poor attempt at a sonic brand but um it's something at least uh, but i think a lot of people perhaps sort of forget what does my brand sound like you know yep. what does my brand look like and yep. like, what does my brand sound like but um that's I, I think maybe a conversation for another day for sure thank you so much Shazia, it was an absolute pleasure thank you for your time that's been great thank you